Yeah, page 81, tab 4, where we're going to talk about um, our approach to preaching God's Word and shepherding. Hope to get through as much of that as we can today. Were there any questions from last week on first link or children's ministry, the policies and procedures that I can help with? You had competent people here talking about that. Well, that's you. <laughs> <laughs> We're acknowledging your presence. Yes. <laughs> Again, anything from last week that I can help with? How do you know about Link? I, I tried to uh, get what I do. On your grace plank? Yeah. The best thing you could do is contact the office and ask Sunday, not to be confused with the day of the week. Yeah. Sunday Burleson is okay. my high palace guard okay. uh, office manager um, who will, if you say, I need help getting on Gracelink, she will be more, you're in there. Yeah. She can help you figure out how to get on there. Okay, yeah, some find that easier than others, I understand. Yeah. So uh, I just now have it saved in my computer. It comes up and I'm all right. But if I had to do that on my own, I'm sure I would have trouble as well. So yeah, just give her a call or shoot her an email, tell her PC said you need to do that, and she'll be happy to help you. All right. Now, two weeks ago, I kind of blew through the whole area of baptism. Remember, in, in terms of the core values that we've covered so far, we've talked about passion for God, intercession and prayer, and Reformed theology was a subset of that a couple of weeks ago baptism. I did not allow for any questions about what I taught that day from the notebook, and so I wanted to just kind of revisit a couple of quick thoughts and then see if you had any questions. It's, it's Im important for you to understand that you find yourself in a Baptistic church. Among other things, that means the sacrament or ordinance, if you prefer that word, you know, Jesus said these two marching orders for his church are to be executed until he comes again. Baptism as a sign of entrance into the church of Jesus Christ and communion a sign of continuation in the faith in the church of Jesus Christ. So baptism here requires a credible profession of faith. You have to be able to declare your allegiance to King Jesus and your faith in his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead and the hope of eternal life. That's why I took some pains to cover the content of the gospel. Do you remember going through school when the prof or the teacher would say, this is going to be on the quiz? This is going to be on the test? In membership application, the gospel, in a Baptist church especially, is on the test. You need to be able to verbalize a credible profession of faith. You'll be asked, how did you come to know the Lord? You may not know the date and the time, that's not the point. But to be able to say, you know, through these means the Lord brought to me an understanding of the good news. I'm a sinner. God created me. I'm a sinner. Christ died for me on the cross. He lived the perfect life I could never live. He paid for all my sins. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And I have hope of grace through faith in eternal life, not myself, lest I should boast. That's uh, your words, but that's the content of the gospel. And I tried to connect the dots in my terrible drawing abilities that the reason we practice immersion for people who can articulate and have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ is that it, it best symbolizes the reality in the heart, going back in the water, dying with Christ, being beneath the water momentarily, buried with him, coming back out of the water, raised to eternal life. So a symbol of what God has already done in the heart. It is a membership requirement at Orlando Grace. All right? So it's not save, but it is such an important, first, some call it a first step of obedience, that if you haven't been baptized, all right, 
then if you want to still pursue membership, understand your membership will be contingent upon that and us working through. And it's not that uncommon in membership classes like this that will schedule a baptism afterwards because there will be folks who've never been baptized. Or they will have come out of, say, a Roman Catholic background where they were sprinkled as babies and were very clear about that not being a legitimate form of infant baptism in our minds. It is a baptismal regeneration heresy. And you've never been baptized in our minds in that way, and so you need to be baptized. If, however, and we talk pretty quickly at this, I just want to review it because it's important, we take a conciliatory stance when it comes to how, for example, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters treat baptism. Baptizing infants as a sign and seal of the covenant and the inclusion of children in the church. And that's a very different view from what a Baptistic church like ours takes. And so, but however, if you come out of that tradition, like some of the people who are members here at Orlando Grace have, and you do believe that that's what the, the scriptures teach, and you can reasonably articulate that view with the scriptures that those who adopt it and believe it tend to point to, then we won't ask you to violate your conscience and to be baptized again, if I could use that. But there's a section in the membership documents where you have to be able to articulate that. You have to show that that's what you believe and why, and not just kind of a willy-nilly. There has to be a working in your heart and your mind about the truth of that. So again, that was pretty fast that we went through that. That usually creates some questions. Uh, it doesn't have to, but I wanted to come back and revisit it before we jump into the next core value. Are there any questions on baptism? Anything I can help with? <laughs> I want to reiterate that in some ways I would like to be one or the other. It's just kind of easier. Um, but on the other hand, I have always felt comfortable I realize it's not for everybody. I've had, I've had people in Discovery OGC who hear that teaching, that that's where we come and landed and have always been there for the 26 and a half years of this church's existence, who do not show up the next Sunday. And I, I, I'm, I'm thankful if they at least let me know, <laughs> you know, and are reasonably cordial about it. But um, I, I understand that it's, uh, it's a... Um, a minority view among Baptists in the Reformed movement, okay? So, uh, but there are other churches that are in a similar place of feeling like, you know, God forbid I would have never wanted to debate R.C. Sproul on baptism, though um, uh, our friend um, MacArthur uh, did have a, have a famous debate with him about that. Uh, th that will go on. Uh, people will write and blog post and debate and preach. I will unabashedly preach and teach believers baptism, Lord willing, until the day I go home. And, and that's all we practice here. Um, but there are clearly godly, scholarly voices on both sides of this. It is just not a place where we'll draw a fence. We will draw a fence in a lot of other places of fellowship and, you know, what, what, what binds our consciences and is absolutely essential to our membership. Um, that's just not an area. So uh, if you have any further questions about that and you want to explore it, by all means, don't hesitate to give me a shout and I'd be happy to try to help you with it. Okay? Sir? Uh, well, since we're talking about baptism, maybe you want to mention... Ah, yeah. Um, when we get to gifts, I'd be happy to address that. That's a great question. If you would help me by reminding me, we're going to have a whole section on spiritual gifts and love to wade into that conversation a little bit. All right. 
Okay, um, we'll talk about a couple more core values here. We we'll probably only get maybe halfway through the shepherding one, uh, but we're going to begin here on page 81 with what we call expositional shape preaching from the pulpit. Everybody with me? Uh, tab 5, uh, 4, on page 81. Okay. God has sovereignly ordained the preaching of his inspired word in the power of the Holy Spirit as a primary means of grace whereby the church may grow and flourish towards spiritual maturity. Therefore, we will give ourselves humbly to the hearing of verse-by-verse -verse exposition of the whole counsel of God. The goal of such preaching is to communicate the clear meaning of text, their harmony with the rest of Scripture, and their relevant application to every facet of our lives. Now, here's the underlying principle that drives a commitment to this kind of preaching as opposed to not an ex complete exclusion of, but an opposed to what is commonly called a topical approach, where preachers will pick a topic and do a series on that topic uh, and kind of bounce around the Bible. Somebody with that kind of, really know the way? Okay. Um, this approach called expository in some, or expositional, is a mindset of we're going to let the scripture, week in and week out, dictate the content because we're going to just move through a methodical exposition of a book of the Bible, a paragraph at a time, a chapter at a time, a verse at a time. So, what undergirds the fact that we feel that's a non-negotiable is a doctrine of inspiration. The first point. Doctrine of what we call the inspiration of Scripture necessitates the practice of exposition. And this will get back to, remember what the first sola of Reformed theology was coming out of the Protestant Reformation? Scriptura. Aha, sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the foundational authority upon which the church must rest. Does the Bible teach this? So that doctrine of inspiration in that the scripture is the inspired word of God is taught in places like Acts 20.32. May I have a reader for that passage, please? And now I command you to God and to the word of his grace is able to build up, build you up, and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Apostle Paul here in Acts 20 on the island of Miletus talking to the elders at Ephesus. Last time he's seeing them, he's headed to Rome. He thinks he's never going to see them again. Has a very high view of Scripture. I commend you to God and the word of his grace. That's what's able to build you up and give you an inheritance. Absolutely imperative. And then to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 4, 4, he says these words. May I have a reader here be prepared to be interrupted at some point. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Okay, I promised you I'd interrupt you, right? <laughs> okay. Here is a foundational text on the inspiration of Scripture. All Scripture is theopneustos, God breathed, breathed out from God, all of it, every jot, every tittle, and profitable. That the man of God, in the case here, as lead teaching pastor, myself, could be equipped. There is no more important tool in the toolkit. If you pop into my study someday and you look at my bookshelf, I'm officially educated beyond my intelligence with all the tools that are on those shelves. Uh, no tool is more important than this one right here. This is what makes me profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training, and righteousness. That is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And then there's this unfortunate chapter break. The chapter breaks, the chapter 4 starts then with what I'm about to actually resume reading. But sometimes chapter breaks interfere with our understanding of the flow of a text. Now, I'm not saying they're not helpful. 
but they are a later edition. They're not in the original. Paul, in his own thinking, under the inspiration of the Spirit, moves right from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 into 4, 1 through 4. Please, ma'am, continue. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears that will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Can you, can you make the connection here? All scripture inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness, a man of God may be adequate, equipped for every word. I charge you. Preach the word. The, the intensity, the passion, the conviction of Paul about his command to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready all the time, in season and out of season. And I charge you, by the way, oh my word, what, what a piling up of concepts here in verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who should judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Think that does not weigh on a man that stands up there at at eleven thirty on a Sunday morning and 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 opens this book for God's people to be built up. The invisible realm and the judgment. Paul invokes all of those things here and says, "You preach this in season and out, and reprove, rebuke, exhort, great patience and and." Um, uh, with complete patience and teaching, why? What's the nature of the day, according to verses 3 and 4? What are people commonly doing? Or tempted to do? We want to accumulate <laughs> teachers that tell us what we want to hear, not what we need to hear. And what you and I need on a Sunday morning is that the man who steps into the pulpit is not going to tell you what you want to hear and tickle your ears. He's going to tell you what God says as best he understands, though he sees through his own lenses and has his own issues. I'll be the first guy to admit that, okay? I've got my, every guy that gets up in there has a set of lenses and sees through his glass darkly, studies hard, hopefully prays hard, labors over the text, wants to get it right, and gets up there and gives it the best shot he has and hopes that God will clean up his failures and faults. But he has to take this seriously. Everything lands here on the health of the church. If the pulpit is healthy, there's a far greater likelihood that the church will be healthy. You cannot sacrifice in this area. Inasmuch as that the entirety of Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for all of this, the church's pastors who preach and teach must be committed, we believe, to the whole scope of God's Word. That's the next bullet point here. Verse by verse exposition helps to ensure a scope. preaching that embraces the whole counsel of God's word. Paul declares to the elders at my leaders again in Acts 20, 27, I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. You know, as I finish up here at Orlando Grace, I've been preaching through Genesis for a couple of years now. By far, the hardest book of the Bible I've ever tackled. Genesis, week in and week out, just, if I had hair, I'd tear it out. <laughs> it's a thought. Now, part of that is my Hebrew's never been that great. I'll admit that. Thank God for the helps that are out there. But it is a challenging book of the Bible, from the doctrine of creation to the doctrine of election to the doctrines of providence and everything in between. Here's what Mark Dever says about this, which has been helpful to me. However, why was that just an aside? First, that you told me about how hard Genesis took off. They'll catch you and say, good boy, and, and be empathetic. No. Verse-by-verse verse exposition 
The fact that Genesis is tough is not a reason for me to ignore preaching it. Or that any number of other problematic passages should be avoided if they are profitable for God's people and are part of God's inspired word. Here's what Mark Dever says. A preacher should have his mind increasingly shaped by Scripture. He shouldn't just use Scripture as an excuse for what he already knows he wants to say. When that happens, when someone regularly preaches in a way that is not expositional, the sermons tend to be only on the topics that interest the preacher. The result is that the preacher and the congregation only hear in Scripture what they already thought when they came to the text. There's nothing new being added to their understanding. They're not continuing to be challenged by the Bible. Study. <coughs> Does that make sense? Okay. I've I, I come to a passage like um, Ishmael and Sarah saying to Abraham, get rid of her and that boy. And dad's going, father, talk about that would not be your ideal Father's Day message. Dad's got to, well, maybe you would start there thinking, huh? That's my son. You know, uh, through the slave wife, arguably. And then God comes and says, hey, permit it. Send her out. I got this. I'll take care of that. Talk about laboring over the text. Lord, what is here? God guards the blessing because it's the child of the promise, Isaac, not that of the manipulative, I got this, take matters into my own hand, Ishmael. Send them away so there's no threat to the elect line. Little did I know that that Sunday preaching that message resolved, we, we ended up, I learned later, in a family leaving because they could they just could not. No. Hey, that was their choice. In, but it was such a hard doctrine to hear that they moved on. Um, expositional preaching forces you to tackle tough passages and try to do your best to get them right um, and let the chips fall where they may. Study and sermon preparation, top of page 82, constitute a priority dimension of the pastor teacher's job description at OGC and necessitate his relative unavailability. In the morning hours. This has been my MO over the years. In the morning, Monday through Thursday, Friday is the high holy day off shut down on Fridays to be with my bride and do things around the house, etc. But Monday through Thursday, I'm in here generally, and in the morning, I'm in the text, studying and praying. I have my own kind of pace where I try to get to a, a, a manuscript writing by Thursday morning and done by lunchtime. Um, just kind of um, oriented to being ahead, preparation. I tend to work a couple of weeks ahead. But given the weight I feel about 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 4, 4, then if I'm going to be prepared when I come here to see you, it's going to have to mean that you can't get me. I, I put the phone on mute. Sunday knows not to let anybody through that door except if there's an emergency. But I have always been pretty rigid about that in the interest of wanting, again, in this crisis I can be gotten to, um, but most things can wait until the afternoon <laughs> or the evening or later in the week. So I tell you that so that you understand that if you can't get through when you're trying to reach me to become a member and you want to talk to your pastor um, or one of your pastors, then there's a reason why um, there's a, lag, there's a lag time. Again, again, unless you call Sunday and say, we're having a crisis, can I get a hold of PCD? You will get through. That's the way you operate. Part of what's behind that is a text like 2 Timothy 2.15. May I have a reader for that, please? Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, <coughs> rightly handling the word of truth. What's something you try to do your best at? 
Any, anything. Parenting, absolutely. Because you've got a high value for that, right? What's something else you'd like to do your best at? Music. Music, right. Playing piano today and singing. <coughs> yeah, high value you have for the praise of God. And so I, I know the song being sung there. She's been rehearsing it all week, right? Okay. Anything else you want to do your best at? Ministering your children because the little ones matter, right? Here's the high standard Paul sets for the preacher. Do your best. The, you know, Jim Elliott, the um, <coughs> missionary to the Alka Indians who was martyred along with four others in that uh, amazing story, talked about the degree AUG, approved unto God. An approved unto God degree in pastoral ministry is rightly handling the word of truth. And the word picture is driving a furrow through the, a straight furrow through the farmland to the planting. You don't want to be ashamed of that. Do your best. Now, how we receive the teaching of the word, your next blank, how we receive the teaching of the word matters as much as how preachers deliver. I have people who will say, thank you for the message. I usually say the very same thing, thank you for listening. This is a two-way communication. And how you prepare and engage the message, I don't think it's an overstatement to say it's as important as how I or any other preacher prepares to deliver that message, for this to have the ultimate outcome we want in terms of God's building us up. May I have a reading for James 1, 21 to 25? Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. In verse 21, what's the first <laughs> guideline you get as a hearer for the way you come into a preached word corporate worship environment? Okay, yeah, there's, a, there's definitely a, uh, an encouragement about putting away sin. When it comes to the way you receive the preached word, though, what's the key word here? Implanted. It's going to be implanted, but you have to have what kind of heart? Me. What's that conjure up for you? Submission, a, a, a readiness to hear, a softness of heart. Um, rather than a hard kind of, you know, may, maybe, the, maybe the visual is, rather than a bit of an overstatement, all right? Do you have, no, you don't. I don't think you can. Do I? Notebook that we have in the, Imagine going into your bathroom and looking at 
uh, you know, sometimes it's worth three hundred. <laughs> but you know, you're disheveled. You're, you know, you have you need to wash, you need to shave, you need to do whatever you need to do. You need to comb your hair if you have hair. You know, and you walk right in the mirror, and then you don't do any of that. You stick on the church, and nobody <laughs> wants to sit next to you, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the word picture here. Yeah. You, you hear the preached word. You know, like one of the one of the applications I will have today in the message about the providence of God brought these nations through 20 years of exile under Laban. Jacob meets his match with a deceiver in Ethel Laban, who tortures him for 20 years. But the long arc, even in that hardship, is the providence of God. And I've got a quote from Luther about, you take God's providence that upholds everything. You know what? Several of us are punching hot water. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I gave them all away. I, don't I know. think you did. Okay, I'll find that for next week. I promise. Thank you for looking at me. No problem. There might be more down under this, but we'll find it later. So, um, but it's that commitment. So, you know, and one of the things I would encourage you, you don't have to try to apply every application of the message. So, okay, Lord, what what uniquely do you have for me? Maybe this this supernatural exchange of grace that is the preaching of God's word that might make a difference in changing me in the long arc of my sanctification. I have a desire to put into practice how the Lord speaks to me in this word. Now, having said all of that, the occasional inclusion of systematic and topical studies, if Lifeline's value provide additional insights and applications, you can go to the church life, personal life, and all that. For example, last fall, I took a break from Genesis, and I did a series on prayer. But even in that, I tend to do what I call father topical preaching. I'll take, a, I'll take a paragraph or a chapter on that part of the topic, like perfect unison prayer, and I'll try to squeeze into Luke 18 one day. And I'll still study that like I would if I were preaching through the whole book of Luke. All right? So... It's not to say that there isn't an appropriate time and place for a thematic study, but we certainly want to be concerned with are we preaching what the Bible is really talking about here as best we can, or are we kind of making this squeeze into our world about what we need to say? Luther said, after, ask about his accomplishments as a reformer, Martin Luther said, I can <coughs> talk this way God's word, otherwise I did nothing for the end of the world. He probably had some hyperbole and I'm sure Lincoln did other things as a pastor and reformer, but he put the emphasis where it belonged, the primacy of the word. That was why, by the way, even though conventional wisdom today is talking about sermons that people cannot tolerate more than 20 or 25 minutes, often have heavily cut and read through the scriptures in 20 or 25 minutes, in my experience, so yes, I preach for about 35, 10 to the 40. Um, this has been my sweet spot, and that's what we do here. I'm always grateful when we get some assistance with any future ones that we may have in the future. Questions about a slide for preaching? And this approach. Yes, sir. Jacob is on the road, 
and he has the ladder to me, right? <laughs> and he says to the psalmist, I will be with you. That's unique to him. And he needs that because he's going to spend 20 years away from home. He comes into that land with only his staff. He leaves with four wives. <laughs> we'll worry about the kingdom thing later. <laughs> Eleven children. And all sorts of stuff. Sheep and goats. It's so ponderous that when he finally meets up with Esau, he has to figure out how to protect the whole plant. So, and over that 20 years, God's <coughs> providence served him well from the childhood with him. And when a guy comes and says, go back to the promised land, I'll be with you. So, yeah, that context becomes very important because he's just connecting the dots and we'll talk about this more. And one of the reasons why I work ahead is because I want to see what's coming after and the continuity <laughs> of what God is doing as he has spoken to the author in the inspiration of the Spirit. Alright? We know where we are too. We can go ahead too. You know, we'll well, yes. I think <laughs> that, that would be a thing. <laughs> Anything else on this subject? Like what you said, and it helps you to uh, tackle difficult uh, topics in God's word that shows that you're not showing like a bias or something like that mm. when you get to that difficult topic because it's in God's word we've been following it all along we've come up to this point we have to cover this you know right and move on to the next piece so you're not uh, yeah. you know, picking one thing and saying you know this is such and such yeah, yeah and I think whoever mentioned that uniqueness can bring uh, serious abuses mm. it's important that the preacher has a similar connection but the text is what dictates not what I want to make the text say for my purposes are. Right. And the thoughts <laughs> you have to pair with if it's going to be a lot of decisions in the and if it's a good voice, what's going to happen right. in the text. And if you lose people for that reason, that's okay. If you lose them because you're an idiot, <laughs> and that has happened, I admit it, that's where we teach mercy. That's another matter where we can repent <coughs> and, and be ashamed to improve. But never be apologetic for the same truth of the scripture because it's what is what people need. It's what I need, it's what we all need. And that's one thing that we haven't said is how completely <coughs> countercultural that is. Yeah. That's totally not right. If, if you're going to go through scripture and say everything that it says and you're not going to skip difficult parts, and you're not going to, and you're going to say what people don't want to hear, then that's not the way to grow your church. <laughs> it's not the way to have a mega church. Um, and so it's yeah. <coughs> First, the danger for a guy like me that subscribes to all of that is that I get irritated by. Well, it's a safe way. Yeah, yeah. Because if everybody's looking at the same it's thing you're looking at, there's a slippery slope for every church, right? Absolutely. I mean. Look how look how good I am because I I do a lot for people. You really need to pray for your pastors because <laughs> we do we're such a messy bunch. So, but no, I get it, babe. I, I agree a hundred percent, and I can only be thankful that in a very rare and it was a season in my pastoral life where I don't think I ever say that kind of violence, but there was a season in my pastoral life where I was convinced that the way to grow a church was to stay with the application of Christ of the text, mm -hmm. the practical, the here's what you must do, to a neglect of the harder principle, here's what it is, doctrine of God and truth. So it was the balance of my teaching that I felt the Lord convicted me about when I finally embraced a reformed view and kind of made some shifts in my philosophy of ministry. So I thought if he was halfway through serving my shepherd, he might just start up here. But this is another important topic. Thank you for very few things more important than each <coughs> word in the, in the life of the church and your um, involvement. And one, this is what you said. Um, I don't think you're going to be cheated in all that you're doing. <coughs> Teaching better, though, 
the similar kind of ethic of the word and its inspired value need to be shared in a deep way. So I would not be handing a baton to anybody that I couldn't trust with me or anybody else's members already or new that need to see this and not pay for it roughly. So I, I, I commend him to you, even though he may function differently than I in terms of the battle. In fact, to find his own words that feel similar to what you're saying, Pastor Phil. So, servant-minded shepherd. So God speaks of the tribe. He's described the shepherding ministry as a plurality of elders. That's an important concept that Phil talks about. Accountable to Christ the chief shepherd to exercise authority for the building up of the church. Therefore, we will faithfully pray for, train up, and set apart valued men whose maturity and example are gift and calling, <coughs> mark them as God appointed servants for the care of his precious sheep. I want to give you some principles here of biblical leadership, and then for no extra charge, next week I'm going to throw in some principles of biblical followership. That's amazing, who would remember that? Not me, but it is true about preaching. Preaching is a two-way conversation. Leadership and followership are two-way conversation in reality in the local church. And the Bible has much to say to the covenant member follower as it does to the leader who shepherds or serves. Principles of biblical leadership. The authority to lead, first and foremost, is that of a servant. Not that uncommon when I have this conversation with the president of DC. So I have people who come to the church first. Leadership and authority have been abused. They've come under the care and shepherding of someone who does not get this foundational point that Jesus makes in Matthew 20, 25 to 28. I know because I've been one of them. The first church I was involved in for the first six years of my life had a pathological abuser of authority at the helm. And it really, really was. The amount of counseling and help I need to get after that, almost a reprogramming kind of reality. In fact, I wrote my master's thesis in seminary on biblical boundaries of pastoral authority. Largely in the name of courage of myself, of a way of handling people that was domineering, manipulative, guilt-inducing, and beautiful. We ran roughshod over some people. Let a lot of people aside, but we hurt a lot of people along the way. Matthew 20, 25 to 28, top of page 83. Now have a reader, please. By the way, before you have a reader, do you remember the setup here? Um, uh, <coughs> James and John's mother come to Jesus, says, I have a request. Jesus says, God, this is a bit. <coughs> Ask whatever you wish. Grant that my sons may sit on the right and the left in the kingdom. Now, the, in the alternate version, there's in the parallel text, there's a, a, a you know, mom's not involved, but there's different authors with different perspectives. But Jesus tells James and John, you guys have no clue. Are you ready to be baptized with the baptism of ready? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and so <coughs> the 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 reality of that conversation that goes on with the disciples is they're all indignant, the other ten, I think because they didn't think to get in line first and ask for those privileges of position. Jesus says, not for me to grant. My Father in heaven has determined all of that. And then he calls them to himself and says, can I have a reader here? Top of page 83. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Okay, I'm going to interrupt you all day long, right? What's Jesus <laughs> saying? Well, how does the world do leadership? Top down, right? Exercise authority. Lord it over them. You, get in line. Do what I tell you. Continue, please. It shall not be so among you. Absolutely not. Go ahead. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. <coughs> Servant and slave, the authority granted to those of us who minister in the Church of Jesus Christ, not that there isn't an authority to be wielded, we'll talk about that, 
but it must come from a heart of servanthood and bond slavery because the ultimate example in verse 28 is who? Jesus, who didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life for ransom for many. The role of the elder, I'm going to talk about two offices in the church that are functional here. The role of the elder is one, is to guide and guard the flock through prayer and ministry of the word. Guide, guard, prayer, and ministry of the word. this from two different places, Acts 20 and Acts 6. May I have a reader, please, for both? Pay careful <coughs> attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among you all shall selves. And from among you, and from amongst you all will go. Mm -hmm. And then that's for <coughs> as well, please, brother. But, but we will devote ourselves. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Thank you. So here's Paul again talking to the elders at Miletus. Pay close attention to yourselves and to all the flock, whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Same word from where we get the word bishop, the one that watches out for it and cares for the church of God, which he obtained his own blood. Handle this care. This is very valuable, what you're, what you're stewarding. That's your <coughs> guidance, and then you're guarding from fierce wolves or false teachers that would come and not spare the flock. In Acts 6, with the challenge of the church growing, the elders and apostles tell the people to raise up for themselves and put forward seven men of good repute to serve as deacons. We'll talk about that office next week because we must devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. <coughs> the qualifications of the elder speak largely to the nature of his character. The exception in verse 2 being able to teach. Everything else in there is about the quality of life. We're going to take time to read 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. But when we put forth nominations for elder and deacon at Orlando Grace, we always publish these qualifications. As we want to say, you're looking for men of this kind of integrity, godliness. Frankly, these are just the qualities of anybody who's walking in the spirit. But they must especially be true of someone who's going to serve in the office of overseer. The elder must, however, be, as we find here in verse 2 um, at the end, able to teach. He's got to, or if you want to take a look at Titus 1, uh, verse 9 at the top of page 84, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he'll be able to give instruction and sound doctrine, and also to rebuke the I have to stop. I promise we'll start next week with the reason why the office of elders here is reserved for men and why you will not hear a woman preach on Sunday mornings from the pulpit. And you can have all sorts of fun with that conversation if you want, but I want to make sure that you understand that. And then we'll head into deacons and followership. So, um, any questions as we finish here? about shepherding, what little we've covered. I will add real quickly, typically every fall is when we solicit, our bylaws require nominations from membership for office of elder and deacon. We receive those over four weeks time, and at the end of that, those men that are nominated with a minimum of four nominations are invited to enter a self-study and vetting process where they read a book, they go through an audio training of eight different sessions, 
and then they meet with current officers to talk about their um, questions and processing going through that journey. If they decide to continue on and they can self-select out at any point, then they are invited to do a written exam on theology and life and ministry. And then that's submitted, and then they're still in the process. They are invited to a oral exam where aspects of that written exam and other things are investigated. If they continue on beyond that and are put forth by the elders, then they submit to a Q&A with the congregation. Finally, introduced to the congregation, they're put before the congregation, the congregation then must vote 75% in favor for them to be installed as an elder. Process generally takes about a year from start to finish. But I tell people all the time, there's only one thing worse than having <coughs> too few elders. And when I first started at Orlando Grace, I was the only one after the meltdown that we had had then. Um, the only thing worse than having too few elders, can you guess what it is? Um, that can be a problem, but it's not as bad as what I'm thinking. Um, <laughs> that too is a problem, but it's not as bad as having the wrong one. You know, guys will get some churches, well, great in business, got to be good in the church, right? I want to know about his character. Does he have sound doctrine? Does he have a heart to shepherd? I tell people all the time, in nominating elder, you're looking for a guy that's already acting like one. Nominating him and getting him in training is not going to make him an elder if he isn't already showing you that he's... I want a guy that doesn't care about having an office. He just loves people and loves the gospel. And he's invested in people. You know, the kind of guy that's a community group leader or a discipler of others. And that's the kind of person we want to be looking for and that's the kind of person we want to develop. Father, thank you for... Uh, I'm just so grateful for these dear ones and their perseverance now in seven sessions in Discover Registry. Thank you for their love for the truth. Pray you continue to guide them as they investigate Orlando Grace. Father, we pray now for the uh, hour that we're about to invest in worship, corporate worship. Pray for all participants to be filled with your spirit. Pray you will aid me in the preaching of the word and our people in the hearing thereof. Bless our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You have my word. Next Sunday, we'll come back with a date for our luncheon. Yeah. Now that funerals are over and travel, and I think all of that is just praying for a season of calm. All right? I'll bless you. Thanks so much. Do you have really no agenda? No, we don't have that distinction, but I'll be happy to cover that if you remind me next week. Okay? That's a great question.